The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. I'm Anne-Marie Kelly. Welcome to Wild Precious Life, a podcast about dreaming big and making real connections. In each episode, I talk to prize-winning writers, musicians, and entrepreneurs who teach all of us how to make the most of the time we have. My guest today is Boon Mi Ladatin, writer, famous mom, and self-proclaimed domestic failure. Her first book, Honest Toddler, made me laugh so hard, I peed. And her most recent book, Dear God, it just possesses this earnestness and vulnerability that I find myself craving quite desperately during these COVID days. Dear God is a collection of letters and prayers reminding all of us what it means to be heard and seen and loved. Boonmi is an award-winning Webby-nominated writer from California whose work has been featured pretty much everywhere. The New York Times, Parenting, Huffington Post, you've seen her on the Today Show, She's just amazing. And she's the author of a whole big old bucket of books. We are just delighted to have Boonmi here with us. She writes from an organic, air-filled home in Quebec, Canada. So I welcome you, Boonmi, to my dusty attic. Oh, thank <laughs> you so much. That intro was amazing. If you could just follow me around and just kind of, you know, you'd help me with my self-esteem. If you just follow me around and just like kind of announced me. I like this idea of like the boon me in my pocket following me around because I feel like I've had the benefit of that for years. I mean, we're only just meeting today, but I feel like I've known you since our babies were born. They were born around the same time. So I wanted to just start, if you don't mind, with just sort of centering ourselves with what brings you here to my attic today? Now, like, not everyone knows your story. So right. I, I would love for you to just make it long and winding if you want, but tell me <laughs> the story of you. Yes. Well, I, I was born and raised in California. My parents are first-generation Nigerian immigrants. I was the first person in my family to be born in, in the States. Grew up kind of, you know, pretty poor, like food stamps and like when they're struggling, it's really hard, hard to make it in, in the States when you're, when you're, when you first arrive. So my parents are struggling and kind of some like poverty issues, um, depression, anger in the household. So I ended up leaving around 16. And I was homeless for a little bit. Then I ended up moving with a friend, slept on her floor. Fast forward, I'm writing humor, parenting humor. Humor is how I deal with anxiety, I think. And I have a lot of anxiety. So as soon as I had a kid, I mean, that just takes your life to such a strange place. You have to either laugh or or just expire. So, and there is so much humor in parenting. So I began writing then. I did the Twitter account, Honest Toddler, where I wrote from the perspective of a very bratty, um, <laughs> confident, but, but I think also a sweet toddler who, you know, they just, they want what they want when they want it and on the right color plate. So I started that Twitter account and then I wrote the book, The Honest Toddler. And then I wrote Toddlers Are A-Holes, Not Your Fault, to kind of help parents know that, no, it's hard for everybody. Um, and then I wrote 
uh, my first fiction novel, Confessions of a Domestic Failure. And I say it's fiction. It's about me, but I didn't want, I wanted to kind of, you know, add a layer of removal there. <laughs> and so this is about Ashley Keller. She's a first time mom, just struggling to find a click. All the things I struggled with, you know, how to find a mom group. Then my, my last two books um, was Dear God, um, no, Dear Dear Mother, which is poems about motherhood. And I just really just shared all of the good, bad, ugly you know, in that book. And then most recent, Dear God, and these are these are prayers that that I prayed. And it just came out of life just getting so hard. My life just felt I mean, I, I was raised in a very strict religious home, but it never took, you know, never took at all. Um converted to Judaism when I got married. So my my husband, his family and he was Jewish, but I didn't have to convert. I just fell in love with with the faith, these people who have been through so much, I mean, just so much and continued to keep their, their faith and, and their traditions. And I just, I just loved it. And, but when we divorced, it was kind of like, okay, well, am I going to keep this, you know, religion? And it felt, cause it felt painful to practice almost. And so I ended up going every which way, trying everything as, you know, sometimes people do. And I, then I, I just found myself kind of at this rock bottom place with no faith. And so I just cried out to God basically and said, okay, I, I need, I need you. I need your help. If you're there, if you're listening, I need help. And so that's where this book came from. These just prayers of someone trying to have faith. I love God very much. He found me at my, he, I mean, he was, he always was with me, but my, my lowest, deepest, darkest, scariest and most alone place. And once I started praying and, and reading the Bible and learning about him, he just revealed himself as a father to me, not just like this remote God who, you know, oh, these stories, but no, there's warmth there that I didn't know existed. There's a relationship that I didn't know was possible. So that's where I am now. That was very long. (laughs) No, that was perfect. I appreciate you taking me through your wandering journey. I mean, you mentioned, for instance, writing letters to the God of your childhood. And I I remember back to what prayer was like as a child. And and I remember, you know, like part of it was obligation because like someone was making you do it. And so you just like our father wouldn't have to say it really fast. And I had my my grandfather gave me a book of like Bible stories with with a one dollar bill in it. (laughs) And the the rule was you had to read the Bible stories before you could spend the dollar. Oh, that Um, is hilarious. So I remember that. I remember slogging through these stories out of a sense of obligation yes. to get the money to get that at the dollar. end. Um, but there was also like a beautiful simplicity yes. to the God of my childhood, right? I I said I'm sorry and felt forgiven. Yes. I said I'm afraid and I felt comforted. Mm. I'm wondering when you say um you're writing to the God of your childhood, you know, how how do you feel like the God of your childhood is different than the God of most adults and grown-ups now? I think when I say the God of my childhood, I don't really mean how I saw God as a child, because for me, I saw God as a child as someone who didn't really care about us, our family, because we wouldn't have had so many problems, you know? We weren't one of the good ones that he cared about, but I think it's more of how I was as a child and the faith that I had in a general sense, not in God. And I didn't see anything bad about him. I just thought, well, you know, he has his reasons for not caring. When I say God of my childhood, I really mean um, an innocence that that I had as a child, the trust that I had 
as a child and the willingness to be open with God that that um, I would have had if I had known of his love. No, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. <laughs> I once heard you, you described yourself this way. You said, I've noticed a lot of speculation about what I am. And you said, it's quite simple, actually. I am a Jewish woman who believes in Jesus as the Messiah, who keeps Shabbat, regularly prays in Arabic and reads the Quran, goes to church when she can, partially covers her hair in public, prays multiple <laughs> times daily, reads the Tanakh and New Testament, and is obsessed with the story of Ruth and talks to and argues with and loves angels and is a Taurus. See? Simple. I don't even remember <laughs> I don't read the Quran anymore, but I did. I did read through the Quran and I studied everything. I, I, I wanted to know what other people believe. And if a million, if millions of people believe something and I'm going to interact with them, I want to, I want to read it. So I did, I read it. I ultimately didn't choose Islam, you know, I did immerse myself, but I, it didn't really, really fit what I was, I don't know. I really did kind of sample everything. (laughs) Well, I think there's a wonderful inclusivity there. And I wondered reading it, like, what do you do to teach your faith to your children. So like, yes. I'll, I'll put this, I'll put this in the, in a, like a food context. Like yes. I can picture the food I would like my children to eat. And if you yes. picture that plate, there's like green things and sprigs and like a lean protein and perhaps like a rice carbohydrate, but it's not taking up the whole plate. So there's like what right. I want my children to consume. And then there's the like box of animal crackers <laughs> that they ate a half an hour before I presented them with that meal I'm wondering when you give the children this plate of faith, what does that look like? Your your desired one, and then what do they actually consume? Yeah, so with the kids, it's always been it's so funny because one would think that because I've sampled so many things, they they haven't because I I didn't really push I don't you know do that with them, but they were raised Jewish, you know, and dad is Jewish, so we, we, my oldest is at her bat mitzvah, and so they're raised Jewish, but they also believe that Jesus is the Messiah <laughs> of the Jewish people, so that puts them completely know the conflict in like the Jewish community how that's like not mainstream thought, but. We have friends who who believe the same thing, so we have that community there, and they know that that my parents they don't do Jewish customs, but they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And then on their dad's side, they're Jewish, they don't do Christian things, but they don't believe in Jesus. So it's like different conversations, different places. That totally makes sense for children. Sometimes too many rules is is kind of hard, right? You can't yeah. really do all the rules. Um, no, and faith faith is personal too. So it's it's I think like with kids, you know, they have to understand that faith is their faith is a personal thing. In Judaism like when kids come of age, the bar mitzvah bat mitzvah age, 12, 13, you know, that's when they're deciding. That's when they are fully responsible for themselves spiritually. So in our house, we talk about how, that, how, you know, you're going to make your own decision with your with your own information. That makes sense. That actually um, speaks to this book. So I, I was thinking about your previous books were um, a lot of humor. You talked yes. about it in the idea that you started writing as characters. But I was wondering um, what it was like to write this book. How was writing Dear God different? It was very different because, yeah, even when I was talking about motherhood, I was doing it, I would do it in a certain voice, you know, depending on what book I was writing and, and what type, I would always use a different voice. And and then 
with Dear God, this was very much my voice, but also about something that was that's so personal and so just like the deepest part of me, my soul, you know, not not my personality, not not my my a role, you know, this motherhood, it's, it's, yes, it's me, but it's, it's one of my roles. This is just me in the, in the, I guess the purest sense, like your soul, who you're going to be even after you leave this world and don't have these, these same roles. So I found it to be easily the hardest book (laughs) I've written. I tried to get out of the book deal twice. Um, (laughs) I sent the email. I was like, I can't, I can't do it. This is too hard. And then even when I was done with the book, you know, they, they send you the whole manuscript and to look over and I couldn't look it over because I knew that if I started looking at it, it would just feel so exposing. And I've talked about a lot of things online. I'm not a closed off person, so to speak, but it just, because I wrote the prayers as I was experiencing them, going through them. It wasn't something that I wrote and then lived and then healed from separately. I was doing everything at once. And I very much believe it was meant to be that way. But I didn't even look it over. I didn't do a final look over. I was like, yeah, it looks great. I totally read it. Yeah, looks great. And, you know, I read the title. That's, that's what I was supposed to read, right? Well, I think there's an honesty and a vulnerability that maybe you would have been tempted to edit out. Yes. There are, I think, some of my favorite moments in the book have to do with doubt. I mean, there are, there are several pages where you talk about what if I've made you up? What if in my desperation for someone to love me, what if I drew you out of the ashes of my dreams? First off, the writing is, is gorgeous, but I was wondering, did it feel scary to know that doubt was in there? No, because I think it's just a part of that. It's a part of faith. Faith wouldn't would it need to exist as a word or a concept if we didn't have doubt? That leap that we take, faith, it, it changes as, as you practice. The faith of someone who's, you know, 20 is not the same faith as someone who's, who's 30 or, or 50 or 70 or 8. Faith, it, it richens and it, and it deepens. Um, so even now when I read it I, and, and read the harder parts, I can see where I was at that time. But his grace, his love, his forgiveness, they... I mean, they're absolutely ridiculous. Like, it does not make sense. Like, I, it's this love that I feel and this love that I, it's so tangible. It's not even just an idea. It's something that I, I feel the moments where I, where I don't even expect it. One of the things that I came back to in your book is that even though I don't always find God in formal religious settings, I always find God in, I'll quote you here, the buttery softness of my my son's cheek or the yes. hug of my daughter, the way she might cling to me just a yes. moment longer. I oh, always yes. find God in my I chills from there. Yes. And I just thought that that resonated throughout, not just Dear God, but but also in Dear Mother. Did that, I write that? I thought you said that. Okay, I don't even remember. <laughs> I was like, I love how you said that. I, just, I didn't remember. I thought you. I, oh, I see. I didn't read it over. I don't do that. I was like, oh, I love that. I was like, I love that. I should write that down. Yeah, you should totally write that down. I also love I the problems. gratitude. I, I No, well, you know what? Actually, we should talk about that. We should talk about that because one of my favorite things about your social media channels, which, which prior to this moment is where I got to know you, is that you and your team speak honestly about anxiety 
depression. About depression. Memory about loss means, is actually one of the things. That yeah. <laughs> what it means to be neurodivergent, all of these things. I just, I come from a family where we, we were taught to hide. Thank you. Thank you for the things you've written. You wrote once about um, struggling with mental illness doesn't mean you're weak or broken. You walk through life carrying weights most cannot even imagine. You're a beast, a champion, even on your worst days. And I, I am grateful for that because oh, I think for a you. lot of folks, you're taught that is that first off that having anxiety somehow makes you an outlier. When right. I think so many people, especially during this pandemic, have experienced the highs and the lows that that many folks with mental illness have been like, "See, this is what I was talking about." <laughs> The other day, I felt I felt so guilty. I was going well. I, on Monday, I went to the Apple Store too for the same computer I'm going to for today, and I was just walking around, you know, on the way to the store. This kind of open air mall thing, and I could feel the tension and anxiety of other of people just in general. You know, you see it on social media. You see how people are very they just they're holding themselves tighter. Then they normally, they, they look around, they look, people look different now. And I'm seeing that people are, who never experienced anxiety are feeling it for the first time. And I feel ter- terrible for them. But there's also this feeling of like, everyone just seems kind of, they're struggling. A lot of people are struggling. I would say almost everybody is struggling. And I wonder, you know, even when we come out of this on the other side, what that will look like. Maybe there'll be increased compassion, increased services for people who kind of live like this on a daily basis. So I think there is something gorgeously authentic about the way we're all showing up for each other now. And I hope, it, it is my fervent hope that when this pandemic starts to ease, when when we're back out there, that when someone asks you how you are, you don't default to fine or awesome that you, I, I haven't answered fine to that question in what feels like a year. Because it would either. feel like, who would, who would want to be the jackass who's awesome during the pandemic? I know, right? right? I'm amazing. I have never been better. You know, no one wants to be there. I know. <laughs> but there is something gorgeous about saying, thank you for asking. Here's how I really am. This is what's, this is what's in my heart and on my mind. And I, I hope that the connecting that we've desperately clung to during this time we aren't afraid to take with us. Because, I mean, one of the things you write about in Domestic Failure is that there's often this shine that people want to project, right? There's the, my, there's my Facebook breakfast. Yes. And then, then there's the crumbs of toast I <laughs> ate from the seat of the car <laughs> yeah. after my daughter threw the toast at me and said, I hate you, mom, right? Like, so my Facebook breakfast looks very different, right? It's There's there's greens on there. It's it's a much it's, so there's a shine that we try to project to people, and yes. what you go to social media in an effort to find connection, and instead, what you often feel is like, oh my gosh, I'm so terrible. Look, everybody else's lives are so much beautiful, more beautiful than mine. But the pandemic has cut through that. You know, people haven't been able to pretend. No, they people don't have the energy to pretend, and they see when other people aren't pretending, it gives them gives them strength and permission too. I just, I, we don't have the energy. We don't have the, the bandwidth to pretend anymore. People either go silent, but they can't because I think they also need that connection. So we're in this space where people are talking and they're talking about what's going on. And I, I very much love that. <laughs> yeah, I'm hopeful that we'll, we'll hold on Me too. To, to some of that. Me um, too. 
My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out. I wanted to ask you about humor, and I actually had a formula that I, I was trying to figure out. Like, what do I mean by humor? So, someone, someone once talked about humor, and I, I don't even know who it was. So, if I'm if I'm quoting someone famous, and they're like, "You're stealing," I'm not. I just don't remember. It was like <laughs> it was like humor equals tragedy plus time. And when I when I heard yes. you talking about like your background, at first I saw that formula, and I just thought that's that's stupid. But then I got to thinking about it, and like I wonder. Like, why are you funny? What, why? Like, why? I mean, you are. You're legit funny. Like, ten for ten. But like, where's that? Where's that come from? Why are you funny? Well, one, I think my brain is like legitimately just set up in a different way. I because sometimes I'm not even trying to be funny. I just have these thoughts. So I think part of it is just my brain. Something is just kind of wired incorrectly. And then also, I think it's yeah. When you go through terrible things, I think it, it's almost just. A coping? I don't know. It, it's it's not really a way to cope because then it would be intentional. I don't. I I think it's a combination of yeah, trauma, and then just your brain works differently because like the human response. And I think it was um oh oh uh hy- hyperbole and a half. Allison Ali of for she wrote about being funny once, and she's very funny. And she was talking about how something funny is something that's unexpected. So it's like something when people hear something that's unexpected or something that they understand, but said in a different way that brings up that, haha, that like funny response. So when someone's brain is wired in a different way, they say things in a different way. So people like <laughs> that's considered funny. And then also, yeah, tragedy <laughs> mixed in. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's a recipe. It's a recipe. <laughs> My dad, he's no longer alive, but he he was one of the funniest people I knew. And because of because of his background, he had he grew up in a family of ten kids, two parents, and one bathroom. Oh my! So I I feel like if someone had asked him like Why are you funny?" he would have said, 10 kids, <laughs> two parents, one bathroom." And yeah. I, and that right like the, the the number of things that they had to deal with. Because they, you know, the, I guess maybe the kinds of things, nothing through him. He was able to expect a lot of things that other people would have freaked out about. Parenting is a lot of the times like that. My daughter last week said she wanted to sew. I don't know how to sew. And like, sure, go for it. She said, I'm going to sew some pants. And I said, sure, oh, wow. I don't know. I can't help you with that. But so I, I came in and she had taken all of her pants and she had ripped holes no. in the crotch in the crotch. I don't know how they wear them in Canada, but here in America, that part's kind of crucial, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so she had ripped holes in all the crotches to put her head through and then stuck her arms through the pants. And the part she was sewing was she was sewing the what's gonna be the crop top, the bottom. And so she now has like 22 crop tops and no pants. Oh my goodness. And there was this there was this moment and I Oh my goodness. I sometimes I sometimes will I turn your titles into curses and I mean that in a nice way. So sometimes sometimes I'm I say things like dear god and then other times I'm like 
dear God. And they become like, exactly, exactly. Right? Like, it's both yes. for me. And so I, <laughs> me I stood there looking at oh the, the crop top pants. And I thought, I can either in this situation lose my marbles, right? Because how am I going to take you for pants? We can't go to stores. And I, this is money. Like, I had a whole thing, a whole, a whole bit I was about to do. Yes. Or I could channel, and I got to thinking about the gratitude in your book, or I could channel the fact, like, what an amazing creative spirit. And I just, I appreciate the gratitude that you brought to Dear God. There's, um, there's one that I think you're just like, Dear God, thank you for coffee. <laughs> Amen. It's like the whole one. Right and here. I just, I was just like, exactly. That, that's everything. And the gratitude that I don't know. I guess as parents, it's really good to remember gratitude, to bring it to our children. And you have a number of prayers in Dear God that are just lists. Thank you for cups of tea, the sound of rain, brick walls, strangers with kind eyes. And I have, since reading your book, tried to remind myself to see the gratitude and and feel the gratitude and be grateful for the messes that our children bring to us. And I think that is its own kind of survival skill. And I'm just grateful. I'm grateful for you reminding me of the things that we're supposed to be grateful for. Thank you so much. You know how like when you look in the like the past, when you remember things, they, they always seem so much sweeter. I think that gratitude helps us enjoy some of that sweetness that we usually only get in hindsight. At least for me, when, when I look at old photos, you know, Facebook or something will remind me of something three years ago. And I'm just like... Oh, unless it was a particularly hard time. But if it was, if it was just normal life, it's like, oh, those days, oh, everything was easier. I remember like the sweetness of that moment. But in that moment, it, it feels overwhelming. And you're thinking about this bill and that. So I think like, and I'm not one of those people who, you know, say, oh, we always need to be grateful, make a list. I start off each day being great. I'm not one of those. I even think sometimes that positivity is like too much for me. I, I can't do that. <laughs> I, I can't, but I, I have noticed that when I'm able to like tap into the, the sweetness and be grateful for, for the things that are really, really are great. And there's so many of them that I get to enjoy some of that sweetness that's reserved for, for, for memories. Sometimes it helps. That's true. The pictures of our children from a day that might've been cataclysmic. <laughs> like I, I remember a day that we found fleas. We used to have a dog who brought fleas into the house and oh. was crawling on my daughter. And I'm like, what is that? Wait, what? And I, I just remember the slow motion oh, running to Lowe's and then the car dying. And like, I remember some oh. terrible days, but I have pictures from those days of us going to the hotel where we had to sleep because the house was uninhabitable. And I, I look at the picture and it all of that turns into just like this warm, buttery, love. And I am just so grateful for these little humans who, even though they didn't pick me, picked me. Yes. Even when they make crop tops. So are the crop tops, are they, is she going to wear them? Had we been attending church, she had one picked out for church. So she has worn, she wore one sledding. She went sledding in a crop top. Again, I feel like- I love her. I feel like I was taught that you don't sled in a crop top. But then again, my daughter would just be like, why? And I'll say, because you could get snow in your belly. And she's like, okay. So. And just, continue. And so, I, don't, I don't see the problem. And like, and then your underwear will be wet. She's like, well, then I'll just change when I get home. So I lost 
I would have lost that argument had we had it. I think our middle children would get along famously. They'd be best friends. You wouldn't have any more. She would cut all your clothes up. Oh, my, my middle already cuts all her clothes up. She, she All of her leggings I bought her, she, she made them in shorts. Short shorts. Every oh. single pair. Every single pair. Yeah, and she's always cutting the sleeves off of things. Sleeves. Like I wanted, I wanted a. She has a sweater tank top. Yeah, I never thought about that, but it was like a fuzzy sweater that she didn't like the sleeves, so she just cut them off. And she made the sleeves into leg warmers. If you see him coming back, she is contributing At to that style choice. I just find like legs of of clothes or sleeves around the house, and I I try to tell her like ask me before you start cutting things up, but she just does it. Because she's thinking of one season. So she cut them up this summer to make sure. So I'm like, hey, but now winter is going to come. And, you know, you don't have any leggings, but, you know, okay. It's pandemic, so we didn't really go anywhere anyway. So we we would, we would need to hide the scissors once our two middle kids get together. We'd, we They would find them, though. They would find scissors. Who are we kidding? <laughs> I'm just realizing now, I had this thought while I was reading Dear God, and and I was thinking about, like, I feel like no matter what, your genre that you're writing in, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, whether it's poetry or prose, I feel like you're always grappling with, and I mean this as a compliment, you're always grappling with the same questions. Like, can it be okay for me to show up as I am? And I think that we learn from our children that the answer is yes. It is. They show up as they are. And I feel like your books give us permission to show up and be who we are. And I think we learn that from our kids. And I'm just grateful to have, I hadn't thought about that before reading this last one. Thank you so much. So in closing, I always do an introduction because I fear icebreakers. I think icebreakers are terrifying at the beginning because like, I don't, how could I possibly tell you those things? I don't know you. But then at the end of a conversation, icebreakers are like, oh yeah, cool. So I like to end with icebreakers. So these are just like multiple choice questions that you can just pick one. Cats or dogs? Oof. Both. They're both so different. I have both. They're so different. I love how cats don't care at all. They show no love. They're they're open with their hostility, actually. <laughs> and when they do want affection, it's in a very specific way, certain amount of pets, or they're going to hurt you. I just love that about them. I love it. And I just, I love how dogs are just, they just love you more than they love themselves. They're such different animals. Yeah, they do. Dogs love you like you wish you could love other people, like just with this boundless open-heartedness. Cats probably love us the way we do love other people, but we wish we didn't, you know? Yes, exactly. Yes, cats are who we are. Dogs are who we want to be. Coffee or tea? Both, too. I, I love coffee for its um, drugs. And <laughs> I, I like tea because it's it's very calming and, not, and delicious with enough sugar. Nice. Uh, mountains or beach? Mountains, definitely. I, I have this mountain. Um, it's called, I, ha- I have a mountain. Yes, I own a mountain. No, there's this mountain I love. I think it's mine. Tell I better not see anybody mountain. on this mountain. So my mountain um, is called Sutton. And I, I go up there. It's where I drive when I want to think happy or sad or just want to just, I just love how they make me feel so small, but in like a good way. You know, just knowing there's just so much they're just so beautiful and majestic. And I look at them, I'm like, oh my, same with redwood trees. You know, this is, this is huge. And it makes me think of God, just God being so much bigger than any of my problems or any of my worries or any of any of my pasts or anything. I love that. Um, are you an early bird or a night owl? I'm an early bird. I cannot stay up past 9 p.m. anymore. I just pass out. 
Are you a risk taker or are you the person who always knows where the band-aids are? Gosh, I know where the band-aids are and I know where everything is because I have to. I think I'm a risk taker, but not on purpose. Just because I don't, maybe I don't know it's a risk until after. And then people are like, that was brave. And I'm like, what it was? <laughs> that happens to me sometimes. They're like, oh, you're so vulnerable. I'm like, I am. Oh, I should scale that back. I didn't realize. <laughs> All right. Now I have a few favorites. Who was one of your, um, who was one of your best teachers, a favorite teacher? Ooh, easy. Mr. Morgan, kindergarten. Because he was so kind. And he had a box of, of treats, um, like not candy, but little little cheap like dollar store but you know type things stickers and if you helped out at recess he would give give you and I would always help I just wanted everything in that box and he's just kind he was just like the kindest kindest man ever shout out what was his name again Mr. Morgan shout out to Mr. Morgan I love him <laughs> how about a favorite song what's a favorite song oh my goodness favorite song it's not the song but I love uh Pachelbel's Canon in D I, I don't, you know, it's a, like wedding song. You hear it all the time. And then they kind of, um, they, they, they make a little, like they sample it for other songs. Train sampled it. I just love it because it's, it's just so calming and so beautiful. And it sounds like two people having a conversation at one point, an argument. And I, even though it's like strings or piano. So I like that piece. I know that one. I can play it badly on the piano is how I know it. My version is much slower and more aggressive. It's like, Bum, 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 bum. But yes, I do that. <laughs> I play it on the violin. Oh, we can, we can oh do that. We will do that. Just let's let's put a pin in this. But like, yes. I'm thinking, you know, a small tour. It doesn't have to be a lot of things. But I think I think like a, twenty moms showing up as we are with the talents that we have or or don't playing versions of the songs that uh, I people. Love that. I think we're just gonna put a pin in that, but. We're going to come back to it. Favorite, uh, what's a favorite book? What are some of your favorite books? Oh, my goodness. My favorite, I love um, Stephen King's book called on, on, on Writing. It's his memoir. I don't even really read his, his, his thrillers, but I just love his memoir. It's amazing. I love it. It is fantastic. Uh, I, I agree. I'm not a, I read Stephen incredible. King as like an angsty, um, you know, 13 year old. And I remember, and I did, I did like that worked for me then. As an adult, I no longer seek out things that scare me because I've got enough of that, right? So I don't, but but his writing book is brilliant when he talks about get your get your pages done. And sometimes I sit down, I get my pages done, and then I go for half the day. And other days I'm slogging away. Like there was a, I learned a ton about me what too. it meant to be a writer and, from him. And, and I hadn't him. expected that. And just learning about him was very interesting. I love that book. <laughs> I, I quite agree. Favorite movie? Do you have a favorite movie? Ooh, gosh. Or just one that so you like. So many movies. Uh, um, I loved um, Shape of Water, um, I, the book and the movie. Oh, they're so incredible. The, the book made me want to stop writing because I, I don't, that was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Like, it was ridiculous. That book was ridiculous. And then the movie was gorgeous. They complement each other so well. Yeah, sometimes I like to read a not good book because it gives me hope as a writer that I could once do that. And then you read something brilliant and it's just like, stop. I'm never writing again. I'm going to fall somewhere in between, but much more likely on this. <laughs> um, favorite ice cream. Do you have a favorite ice cream? Ooh, I like um, anything with like pralines, I, like pr like nuts and caramel. I like the combination of nuts and car caramels, so like pralines and cream type ice creams. Um, I don't like strawberry. I don't like chocolate. I don't like mint chocolate chip. I don't like vanilla. 
I, I know more what I don't like than <laughs> what I do ice cream. Last one. If we were to take a picture of you and just capture a really happy moment where you're doing something you love, what would we see you doing? <laughs> Sleeping. <laughs> I'd be an REM. <laughs> I know that sounds terrible. I should say like baking with my children or like, I don't know. I know I should say that, but I'd be, oh, oh no, I'd be in bed. Okay, actually, this is the truth. I'd be in bed on a Saturday morning and it's one of those days where it's not too bright because I don't like super, super bright, bright days. Um, it'd be overcast, you know, and and raining and I'd be in bed with my blankets and I'd be reading a book and I'd have tea. <gasps> That's a perfect moment right there. I love it. And the rain on the window. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That you don't have to carpool anywhere in. No, nothing to do. There's nothing to do. I have this dream that we will um, actually get people to send us. Somehow we'll get these pictures of them. And that is what I will frame. (laughs) All these people we've chatted with in their just their best moment. Yes. (laughs) Boonmi Laditan, I am so grateful that you were able to come here and spend time with us. You wrote, quote, my prayer today is that whatever you created me for, I will do it. That's one of my favorite lines. And you also wrote that an angel once told me that things grow in the sun, but are cured in the dark. Whether you are in a season of blooming or refining, my wish for you is peace. My prayer for you today and and really for everybody, anyone who's listening, is that whether you're in a season of blooming or regrouping, honor that today. Whether you are shining in the sun or seeking a cure in the darkness, honor that in yourself today. And I hope and pray that each one of us today will do what we were created to do. And I'm just so grateful that you have written what you've written and that you came here today. And I mean, to anyone listening, I know that folks could have spent this time like life has been competing. And I just want to say thank you to everyone who's come and sat with us because time is a gift. And I'm grateful, Boonmi, that you spent some of it with us today. Anybody who doesn't know Boonmi's writing, you can get her books at an independent bookstore near you. I have some of them right here. There's not, there's seriously not, not one that I wouldn't recommend. And listen, wherever this day takes you, I'm wishing you light and love. And until we see each other, please be good to yourself, be good to other people and join us again on this wild and precious journey. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya. Producer Sarah Wilgrube and audio engineer Eric Coltnow. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. 
So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.